0: Shalom, and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney.
1: I am excited to do a little bit of learning, uh, as I mentioned, about this point in the Balak story that has to do with a curse that makes it into our liturgy part of what makes it exciting is that it's a piece of liturgy from the Torah straight from our Torah text and as Larry who's here with us on Zoom and I were discussing in our class and Marlise might be around somewhere too she's also in that class regularly we we discuss how it's very rare for a substantial piece of text, not just from Tanakh, not just from Hebrew Bible, but from the Torah text itself, to make its way into our liturgy, and to stay in liturgy. The example that I gave earlier this week in class is the text of a Sarah ha dibrot, which made it into our liturgy for a. Substantial amount of time. It stayed in there uh, for centuries until it was removed because of concerns that there were Christological understandings of those Ten Commandments as having more import than the other 603, and that, along with some other concerns, eventually had those Ten Commandments removed. So very few direct quotes from the first five books, from the five books of Moses, make it into our daily l- liturgy, certainly. And um, can anyone think of examples of direct quotes that make it into our daily liturgy? Shema? Be. There you go, yes. Shema makes it in, and that's probably the the fullest um, or nearly the lengthiest, three paragraph plus the line of Shema itself quote. What else makes it in? The Shamro, Those are great, and those are weekly, right? Because those make it in on at least um friday nights and in the case of vishamra both friday nights and saturdays what makes it in daily Sh- shirat ayam great shirat ayam, we
0: do depending the in. tradition, the akedah
1: great in, in some, exactly in some traditions the akedah will make it in fantastic some some of the morning
2: where the morning before the service starts
1: Good. I, 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 I like your I like your broad answer because it's good. it's all inclusive. Good. Um, it, probably there's something in there. Good. Um, why don't you think about the very end of the Amida only said when we have a minion present and we're doing a full repetition. Sure.
0: The priestly blessing.
1: Is priestly blessings good? The, the thing about very um, good.
2: Where the rain falls next to the neighbor.
1: The rain falls next to the neighbor. Can you say a little more? Uh,
2: I just remember it as it's an ex. uh, People use it in theodicy about why bad things happen to good people, because um, maybe your neighbors getting something
1: But I would have to look fast in door to think what it is. If you find it, great. Let me know. So these are all wonderful examples of things that actually do make it into daily liturgy. There are about four or five. If you find another one, I'd love to know because I like to keep a list. And these are the very few that make it into daily liturgy. Another one of them is Matovu, which comes straight from this week's Parsha. It's often offered as something that's said in two instances upon walking into a synagogue. I want to give you the example that most people know and the example that most people don't know. Okay? The example that most people know is um, that it is often said as the first verse, not upon waking, that's, Grateful am I before you, God. But the first verse said upon walking into a synagogue. This is the first text that's found on your source sheet. It's Numbers chapter 24 verse 5 and it's Matovu Tovu'o HaLecha Yaakov Right? Tovu'o HaLecha Yaakov You may know that song from the 19th century I think or maybe early 20th. I should have looked up the composer beforehand. It's a fully composed piece. This um, this line is said upon walking into the synagogue because of its obvious connection with praise of how, how lovely are your, is your ohal, your mishkan, right? Because walking into a synagogue. It is also a beautiful verse to say when, okay, let me just offer you a circumstance. Instead of, of just telling it to you vaguely, I'm going to tell you a story. There's a beautiful synagogue on the grounds of the Jewish Theological Seminary where I attended cantorial and rabbinical school. It's called the Women's, Women's League Seminary Synagogue. Plug for everyone to support Torah Fund and Women's League. It supports our seminary students all across the world. And uh, they supported the building of this gorgeous and also newly renovated um, sanctuary. And it's right next to Kripke Tower, Kripke um. Uh, long story, it was the old library. there was a fire. It's the big tower you see at um, 3080 Broadway if you've ever been to the to the building in New York City. And you can enter and most people do from the side near the elevators over by the Kripke Tower. but you also might have building uh, classes in the other, Building on the other side of the sanctuary. And for a whole host of bizarre reasons because of the way that the building is constructed and it's a bit inaccessible, like I don't know how they deal with uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, Sometimes the easiest way to get to those classes is to go right through the sanctuary. But there's an explicit prohibition, and you bet seminary students know about it, that you're not supposed to cut through a sanctuary without... At least studying a little bit of Torah. So I have with my own ears, heard many a seminary student and even a professor walk quickly through that synagogue and gone. <laughs> because it's a great five-liner and saying a verse just to be cognizant of the fact that they're cutting through, which they shouldn't do anyway, but if you're going to do it, say a verse of Torah to be cognizant of the fact that you're cutting through a sanctuary to get to a staircase so you can, you know, take the stairs up or down to get to to this bizarrely constructed side of the building. So you can say this line to do it. And that's my that's my visual reference to this verse. Okay. So that's to kind of situate us in the way that that we use this liturgy i want us to flash backwards for this text from the dot Zikainim, which i gave you a little bit of background on it's middle age france germany italy england it's this big school of commentators from crossing a couple of centuries that was compiled later um and it it, it's the bali uh tosafote it's it's a a tosafistic school that come that Gives us commentary on this Matovu. and I want us to flash backwards because before we even think about its problematic place in liturgy, I'd like us to think about how this text troubled our rabbinic commentators and might trouble us as our own rabbinic commentators. You can be a rabbinic commentator. I I appoint you such. Um, thusly. I, I want you to think about how this troubled their minds and how it might trouble ours in terms of this story. Who was Bilam? He's this guy, the son of Peor, right? That's his father of, um, his father is, uh, who, who, who is his father? Let's see. He is Bielam, And he is son of Beor. He lives in Pator. Go Patora and go find this guy. Bilam ben Beor. Go find him. He is a sorcerer. Who tells his folks to go find him? The king named Balak, who is the head of the Moabites. Now, the Moabites saw what happened to the Amorites. We know these names because we recount them actually liturgically on a daily basis. We talk about what happened to some of those folks before us in the wilderness. And the Moabites thought, well, that's not great what happened to the Amorites. Let's see if we can earn some protexia. Let's see if we can can get in on the good side. And they believed that sorcery was one way to do this, to hire someone to curse the Israelites. So they send out for Balak. In the story, God tries to stop Balak a lot of, sorry, to, tries to, to stop Bilam, the sorcerer, from doing the cursing a lot of different ways. First of all, does Bilam say yes right away? No. He hesitates. He says, let me sleep on it. You guys sleep over there. I'm going to sleep on it. I'm going to talk to God. Talks to God. God says, absolutely not. Do not do this. So he says, no. The messengers go back to Balak. And Balak says, go back with more money. (laughs) So he goes back with more money. Again, he says, I'll sleep on this. God says, I mean, go ahead. But absolutely under no circumstances do you curse them. And God is pretty mad that that Bielan doesn't take the hint. Right. Bilam, like, goes, you know, for the money and, like, takes God's yes, even though he shouldn't have taken God's yes. So he sends the whole donkey angel path situation, right? An angel to block the path on the way. God tries to stop this whole thing from happening. But ultimately, the only way that God somehow seems to be able to exert divine force into the story happens In the moment in which Bilam opens his mouth to curse and says a blessing. And the disagreement among the rabbis about what happens in that moment is the following. You have to understand this to understand the Daad Zakinium's commentary. They are wondering the following. Did Bilam curse? Uh, Blessed the Israelites on purpose, or did he not? Did Bilam ultimately, because you saw this character resisting, right, resisting and resisting, doing doing this uh, cursing? Did Bilam write this blessing? Was he the composer of Matovu Ohalacha Yaakov, or did God write it? and intervene and put it on Bilam's lips. Let's see what the Datsakhanim have to say about it. Will someone read it for us in English? From in the Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, from there. Someone have
0: that? What are you asking us to read?
1: From
2: from here where it starts, how goodly are your tents, Yopo?
1: Yeah, you can start from
2: there. In the Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin Folio 105, Treatment of this Verse, Rabbi Yochanan is quoted as saying that the wording, i.e. the metaphors of Bilam's blessing, reveal that these blessings had been involuntary. He had intended to point to the paucity of synagogues and houses of Torah study, But what came out of his mouth were words of admiration for saying he referred to those houses, these sorry, he referred to these houses of studies now as if they were equivalent to tabernacles devoted to God as his residence. Mishkanotacha Yisrael. Instead of saying that its dynasties would be short lived, he said that they would flow like rivers. Instead of saying that they would not enjoy orchard, would not enjoy orchard and vineyards. He said,
1: um, could good notes, ale, yeah. right. Kigan notes all nahar, like gardens situate near right. a river. i I'm growing up conservative. I need vowels. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, let's see. Like gardens situate, situate near a river. For easy irrigation. Rabbi Yochanan there continues in this vein. An alternate interpretation by Rabbi Abba bar Kahana. All of Bilam's blessings eventually turned into curses when the Jewish people did not live up to the idealistic vision of them he had painted. Except the blessings concerning
1: the synagogues and houses of Torah study. Okay, so thank you for reading that for us. That whole last part about his blessings turning back into curses could be its own interesting she'or, or, but we're not going to focus on that. I want to know from you why you think the rabbis would have felt more comfortable in this case of this Tosifistic school in the Dazekanim, and they're not the only ones. Why are they more comfortable with the idea that God was the composer of these words and put them in Bielam's mouth than Bielam being the one who actually changed their mind? Let's see if there's someone else who wants to speak up on this when we haven't heard from yet.
0: um I would assume that... The rabbis um, didn't want to make it too easy. And they wanted to, to the um it belonged to the, B'lam, B'lam, actually, the you were saying that Balaam was the one that changed his mind. And I would say the rabbis would say, no, it, it's not, that's that's too easy for Balaam. It's, it's God has to be the one who has to make the change. Um,
1: um. Okay, I like that idea. So it'd be too easy to let Bilam just run with it and have and have that win, that we want it to be that God intervened and that there was another divine moment there. Right. Very interesting. Okay, Joanna?
3: Um, I'm wondering if the rabbis are asking this question already at the point when This verse was being used liturgically because the question then becomes we've got like this non-Jewish prophets words that have made it into our liturgy and the words of Moses and the words of, you know, Abraham, the other, you know, words out of the mouths of our own people do not seem to be in our liturgy. So, you know, I think some of the discomfort there is some of the same questions that um, are raised around the prophet Yonah, like, you know, going to prophesize to to a non-Jewish group of people. Like,
1: why are we so busy and concerned about that? It, okay, just because we're short on time and because that was such a great transition to the next point. Tybal, I'm not ignoring your hand. I just want to use that as the, as the transition to the next thing and hold on to that thought, okay? What a wonderful question to plant, Joanna, which is, well, gosh, what if it was already in the C-Door? Because if it were already in the C-Door it would feel really uncomfortable to know that the words of a foreign sorcerer for hire were the ones that we were using to open our mouths to praise each day in a sanctuary. And here, look at the next source, if you will, please, or listen, if you're just tuning in, or if you're this is later on the podcast, and you're not looking at the source sheet. So Seder Rav Amram Gaon, which is one of the oldest intact Sederim that we have. It's from the 9th century. Remember that these Tosafistic schools we were looking at were from the 11th through 13th centuries. Already in Sura Babylonia, we have this 9th century, um, full Seder Rav Amram Gaon, one of the two of the earliest full Sedors that we have, Sederim that we have. We have Ha labita chnas beta o omer ma ha'lecha lecha yaakov mishkinotecha techa yisrael. V'ani ni baril kastacha avovitecha eschachave elechal kochacha and then there's an instruction also, and when you leave, so that's what the one who comes into the synagogue should say this, and the one who goes out should say, and then insert a line. So the uh, there was a secondary line that you all might may have seen in the door before from Psalms, uh, from the fifth Psalm, and then when you leave, you should say this line from Psalm five. So. It it was in the Sea Door, so Joanna, that that definitely stands up to your point, this point of discomfort. And just this week, I was responding into a thread again to bring up our friend Larry, who is here with us, with not to ignore you, Diane, but Larry and I've had a. It's good to see you too, Larry, and I've had a back and forth on this a bit this week with the rest of the clergy, talking about questions of what we do with challenging authorship around you know, composers in the C Door, this, well, may be one of the oldest questions around this, I think, right? It may be one of the oldest arguments around it. I want to show you the oldest, oldest version of the argument around this. You ready? So, um, go down to uh, the next source here, to Shutamaharshal. These are the She'elotuchuvo, these letters back and forth from Rav Shlomo Luria from the 16th century. What does he say? When I come to Shul I start with that verse from the Psalms. And skip that first verse, Matovu, cause Bulam said it first. And he said it as a curse, as we find in Sanhedrin 105B. And this is not its proper place. So it's later, it's it's sixteenth century already. And Shlomo Luria is like, oh boy, no no, right? This is It's such a beautiful, I think, analog to some of the conversations that we are witness to in contemporary times about generations that precede ours who were not troubled by some of the origins of the literature or liturgy or the music that we might have taken to heart and used to uplift ourselves. And then a later generation comes along and says, I am. I am not comfortable with this. I would be very curious for any thoughts that any of you have, either on uh, this appearance in the Sidor Rav Amram uh, or, in, or of the Maharshal's opinion. What do you think of this and of the Maharshal's refusal to say Mahatovu?
3: I think one of the things we're confronted with also. Is changing values, right? So what might have been comfortable for an earlier generation is not comfortable for ours. You know, there's a whole thing going on now around, you know, Picasso and how he treated women. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know if this was Larry's question, and if this opens a can of worms, but um Singing the music of karlebach um you know sometimes presents some issues for um certain people, and yet it is music that a so moves our souls i I mean speaking collectively, but just knowing the influence of his music and I have heard so many musicians also say how influenced they were by his music, right so like there's like the fruit of that also and um so there, there are tough questions to wrestle with and, you know, to apply our values to that were not necessarily the values of previous generations. And it, it also feeds into things like gender sensitive language and God sensitive language. And there's a million more things that could be said and I've said enough. Yeah. And.
4: <laughs>
1: It, it's beautiful, and I'll just clarify that it was an asked and answered Shiloh and Chuva um, uh, of uh, my dear teacher, and I think a dear teacher of Larry's as well, Rabbi David Golinkin, having to do with the use of contemporary music as applied to, contemporary to any given generation as applied to lit- liturgy, Jewish liturgy. Um, Tybel, I would love to hear from you and then from the Hermans. Um, this is what I wanted to say before
2: is just toss out there, because the phrase where the words came from, it's not just spirit, but it's spirit of God. And it's the Elohim version of God. And the first place the spirit of God is found in the Torah is the second verse. Hmm. I mean, in terms of creation, and then it's all through Bereshi. So at a certain level, is it if the spirit of God was creating the world in that exact phrase with that God name, and then the spirit of God was moving whoever this was,
1: is it chutzpah to ignore the spirit of God? I love that because for me, I'll just out myself as somebody who does say ma tovu. (laughs) Um, As controversial as that may be, I don't think it's I don't think it's controversial um, I, I think about this wrestling factor and the wondering about the divine inspiration in that moment and the very wrestling no pun intended or maybe so with the matovu Ohalecha Jacob and the Israel uh, connection there I I, I I like the wrestling with that and is Elohim placed to the side or not um, you know I, I like the the wrestling with it and with the maintaining of it All right Hermans.
4: So um, there's always a tension between tradition and then new ways of looking at things. And our, our tradition tells us that tra- tradition is very powerful and, and becomes, in some sense, halakha. So to go against the tradition of saying the words matovu was somewhat, as you I think you said, Um as it was accepted practice at that point.
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's deeply chutzpahik, and I think Diane, one of the most powerful things for us to study here together and to empower one another with the the as um, prayers as people who are engaged in in our own liturgical practices, is to get past this idea that the door has only gotten thicker. We have this this sense that we've only added to the C door over time. And it's just not true. Once upon a time, the Ten Commandments did appear in the Sidor. Once upon a time, the Akedah was in all Sidorim, and now you won't find it. And somebody who didn't grow up in a movement that includes it won't know that that's a part of normative daily liturgy, right? And maybe somebody who grew up in the communities that the Maharshal has influence over, I've never asked in Prague, you know, what happened over there, but maybe maybe it doesn't appear. It'd be an interesting research. So I think that's what makes it interesting is to know that you might think that it only got um, thicker but apparently people have had that chutzpah over time to go against that tradition and to say maybe we should take it out
4: just, just before Larry's piece I want to add one more thing which is that Rabbi Lincoln also has puskined about the inclusion of the imahot in the service um, and that goes back to the, the liturgy using Torah words or concepts um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting
1: question. And and I actually vastly prefer his approach to it than the one that was published in Sidor Sim Shalom, which is why, if it weren't for a lot of other things, I would dive in from Filati just to use his construct of the Imahot, but that's oh, a his,
4: oh, actually, his, his construct is not in Filati. We'll tell you
0: it's later. In, it's, it's caused, a, it's caused it's a, a, huge r- a huge rift in his, in his and our yeah. ar- I'm sure.
1: <laughs> oh. oh, I have many questions about that, but to be continued on that, because I think Larry has other things to say. Yeah.
0: Well, I don't want to take a lot of time. I just want to mention that I have a lot to say about all of this and at another time with you in class and with Joanna any any time, um, especially, as I said, since I'm trying to incorporate some jazz themes into a uh, Kabbalah Shabbat uh, um, sometime. But this morning at Library Minion, Henry Morgan was was leading the Torah service, and he substituted some passages that are in the back of the Lev Shalem instead of the prayer for the country in honor of um, Juneteenth um, uh, Day today. And it included things that were uh, historical. Uh, I think readings from the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and something else. So there's an example of bringing something in. It's not really fila but into the service um, that I thought actually contributed greatly. I thought it was a, a wonderful thing that he did.
1: Wow. That is stunning. That's that. That's so beautiful. And thank you for sharing that, Larry. I I'm so, I don't want to cut anybody off or cut off our time here, but please hold on to other thoughts because I want to share this very last piece of Torah to wrap us up. Write me later with your other thoughts Let's extend this conversation Because I'm enjoying it And I have more I'd like to hear from you Let me share this last Rashi with you Please, I'm going to tell it more as a story Than reading the source I want to share it with you Not because it has anything to do with this text But because it's one of my favorite pieces of Midrash um, it, it has to do with the bringing of offerings To the Mishkan in the Midbar And uh, apparently so it goes um, in this ancient Midrash some women brought to Moshe mirrors of copper and these mirrors of copper seemed to Moshe to be offerings that represented Yitzhar Harah, that represented um, uh, not only like um, an evil inclination but vanity right, why would you bring mirrors that were used for personal use to the tabernacle and God not only said to Moshe that he should accept these offerings, but that they were more desirable to God than any other offering, and why? Because when the slaves were laboring in Egypt, the women would bring their partners at the end of a long and terribly awful day in front of the mirror. And they would say things, they would they would turn to their partners, they would dress themselves up and turn to their partners, and they would say things to them to entice them uh, to come together with them and to continue hosts of generations coming from them at that time, answering the question, how is it possible that Jewish babies continued to even be made under the conditions of slavery? I love this story because it's colorful. And I love this Midrash because it tells us the story of how something that seems to come from a source that is so uncomfortable is actually intended and turned around in its story uh, to be used for something that is at its most holy. I think it's really Important for us to think about how things can be repurposed and reframed. The same stories can be told. By the way, if you listen back to the podcast to Rabbi Clickfeld's commentary on the ways that the uh, incense was used and refashioned um, it, as used in um, in the temple, because it was a reminder of the ways, and also the copper fire pans um, as they were used um, under. The worst conditions, those very things hanging um, amongst the Israelites during their holy service were reminders of what not to do and how to be. Right? So we can repurpose things and it's in our repurposing of them and in our way of looking at them that allows us to to understand what meaning we insert in them and what meaning we apply to them that's how liturgy works that's how music works as applied to liturgy and so on and so forth so i look forward to continuing this conversation with everyone
0: you have been listening to another in
1: our series of podcasts from temple beth on a
0: dynamic center for conservative judaism in los angeles